that's a short, sharp sermon title from Charles Haddon Spurgeon in a sermon that was delivered on a Thursday evening, the 21st of March, 1867, at a place called the Surrey Chapel on Blackfriars Road. That wasn't too far from the Metropolitan Tabernacle where Spurgeon ministered. It was the place where Roland Hill had been a pastor and preacher for so many years, Uh, and I think it was Newman Hall who was then the minister at the Surrey Chapel. I don't know precisely why uh, Spurgeon had been invited to preach on this occasion, uh, but the Surrey Chapel is fairly well known as a uh, a free church, that is, a an independent congregation, and one which would have invited a number of different uh, ministers of the gospel. Uh, that would have been the, the 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 core of their commitment to preach the word of God. So Spurgeon takes as his text John chapter nine and verse four, and preaches what is now number seven hundred and fifty six in the Metropolitan Tabernacle pulpit from the text. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night comes when no man can work. Now Spurgeon himself points out that the words of the text were in response to what he calls a very speculative question. Uh, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Spurgeon's point is that the Lord Jesus Christ has a greater respect for work than for speculation. Now, he's not saying that the Lord has no regard for genuine thought, but the question that was put to him had no real substance to it and very little point to it. It was going entirely in the wrong direction. And rather than uh, indulging in a, a speculative conversation, rather than plunging into the labyrinth of metaphysics or expounding predestination, Christ's response was, I must work. You may think and talk and argue, but I must work. You may give yourselves up, if you know no better, to the inferior occupation of jangling about words, but I must work. Nobler calls I have to obey than those which come to your carnal ears. We gather then, says the preacher, that the Saviour has a greater respect for work than for speculation that when he comes into the world, he will go to all the mighty thinkers and the gentlemen who are constantly producing new ideas and wonderful points of subtlety and put them into the scale as so much rubbish, but that when he finds a single worker, a poor widow who has given her two mites, a poor saint who has spoken for Christ and been the means of the conversion of a soul, he will take up these works which were done for him as precious grains of costly gold. So then, the point is, not stop thinking. There's a a time for thinking and there's a time for action and this is no time for thinking. That's not Christ's motto. But rather, don't get sucked into this uh, empty speculation, this teasing out of nonsenses, this indulgence in things that have no real practical value. Get to work. And so Spurgeon is going to, again, keep close to the text. And once again, you see his versatility as a preacher. We saw it last week when we uh, looked at his sermon on the unsearchable riches of Christ that was preached at the Agricultural Hall in Islington to thousands of people, 20,000 people or so. Now he's preaching again in a different place, again, not to his own congregation. But he, uh, you'll, you'll see maybe before we get to the end of the sermon that he's even conscious of the geography of where he's preaching. 
So here he draws our attention to the text and again he's hanging his points off the language of the text. So when sometimes when people talk about a topical preaching, uh, this is not topical preaching in the sense that's so often dismissed. It's, it's, if you like, topical textual preaching. It's not, oh, I'd like to talk about something and maybe from time to time we'll throw in a bit of Bible, but rather here is a text and I'm going to expound the text in its context. So I shall draw your attention to the text, says Spurgeon, and I'm going to take and keep close to the words of it and I want you to observe, first of all, a necessity to labour. I must work. Let me pause again to remind you that here Spurgeon isn't doing what he often does in his own congregation, which is to say, this is our roadmap. We're going to say this, 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 and this. He's got four points in this sermon, but he hasn't announced them up front. Again, he uh, is able to take a slightly different approach. You'll see it also in this in this sermon, in that often he heaps up his applications at the end of the sermon, or sometimes just weaves them along. Here he's got a really a, a much stricter or more rigid approach. Point, application, point, application. Christ, his people, Christ, his people. So here's some of that versatility as, as a preacher. Here's some good example for us as, uh, as preachers ourselves, if that's what we are, or indeed as hearers, to understand that there are, if I can put it a little bit, Without subtlety, there's there's more than one way to skin a cat. Spurgeon knows how to go about his business in a number of different ways. So, I must work a necessity to labour, point number one. With Christ it was not, I may if I will, or I can if I like. Not mere possibility and potentiality of work, but an imperious necessity. I must. And the cords which bound him were the cords of his deity. They were the cords of love which bound him. I must work. He was himself love, and it was because he loved the sons of men so well that he could not sit still and see them perish. He couldn't just watch men going to hell, uh, but must rather draw near and do good. And there was a, a hot consecration and devotion that made his soul run out toward men. Not only was it the love within which made the compulsion, but also the sorrow without which compelled him. There was a blind man here, and Christ's heart went out to the needy man, and he said, I must work. And Spurgeon says it's not just that, that Christ saw this one man, he saw the world of ours quivering over the pit. He saw it floating, as it were, in an atmosphere of fire and wished to quench those flames and make the world rejoice and therefore he must work to that end. So there's his love within. There are the sorrows without which call forth this necessity. Remember too, says Spurgeon, that he'd come into this world with an aim which was not to be achieved without work but which was a passion with him and therefore he must work because he desired to achieve his end. It is right enough if a man has a just ambition, he says, that he should seek the means by which that ambition may be attained. Our Saviour's ambition was to be crowned with the gems of the souls which he had saved, to be the great friend of man, the great redeemer of mankind, and consequently he must work. 
He must be men's saviour. He cannot be their saviour without working. And therefore, that passion within, that need without, and the great and all-absorbing aim which drew him onward furnished three cords which bound him, like a sacrifice, to the horns of the altar. I must work. Again, just thinking in terms of the way he's approaching this, although he hasn't uh, said, firstly, and here are my sub-points, you see he's got this structure, the passion within, the need without, and the great and all-absorbing aim. And you can almost imagine, uh, perhaps especially if you've done public speaking or preaching and you've used this kind of approach, uh, you know something of Spurgeon's uh, use of notes in manuscripts in the pulpit, he's pretty much got that a necessity to labor i must work and then probably just those three phrases written down and now he moves on it's uh, this this structure remember he's got now that the christ and us christ and us without enlarging upon a theme so tempting let me ask whether you and i feel the same compulsion for if we are as christ was in the world if we are worthy to be called his followers at all we must be compelled with his compulsion we must be weighted with his load key question do we feel as if we must work this is not to be a christian to shun work for christ People who are always finding fault with somebody else's work as if it were their passion to criticise and to judge. Someone who will do anything to dodge the work they've been given. Their great aim is to avoid being uh, pressed into labour. They don't to, to expose their precious selves to any kind of sorrow or toil. But Spurgeon says if we're Christians, we're workers. I've looked to Christ and I'm saved. Why must I then work? Well, because I am saved. No true Christian works to be saved, but because saved. If Christ has bought me with his blood, I must spend myself for him who bought me. If he sought me by his spirit, I must give himself to him who sought me. If he's taught me by his grace, I must tell to others what I have learned from him. So there's no selfishness, there's no lowness in the Christian's desire to work. Our love is caused by Christ. His love to us makes us feel that we must work for him. Will he let me try to increase his glory? Will he suffer me to feed his lambs, allow me to feed his lambs, or to be a shepherd to his sheep, or to look after three or four girls in a Sunday school, or to watch over one child as for him, or to give a tract away, or to subscribe of my substance to any of his interests? Oh, then how good it is of him to let me! How I wish I could do more! Oh, that I had a thousand hands to work with for him, a thousand hearts and a thousand tongues, that I might spend all for him. How do you feel when you read that? Do you see your opportunities to work for Christ as an imposition, a burden laid upon you, or an opportunity given to you? So important that we understand these things, because there's so much slowness and dullness and complaining, uh, so much unwillingness. Uh, there's a slowness to take up the work and Spurgeon says, shouldn't we want to work the way Christ worked? Don't we want to lay ourselves out for him who laid himself out for us? And he moves on. Secondly, there's a specialty of work. I must work the works of him that sent me. Lots of people say I must work, but few say I must work the works of him who sent me. Spurgeon says, it's 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 a proper principle. If you want to prosper in anything, throw your whole soul into the work and work as hard as you can. But ask, what are you working for? 
Lots of people work hard to be rich and famous, but Christ came into the world not to be a king among kings or famous among the famed, but a servant of servants and to fulfill the will of God. Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. He came to do it, and having come, he did it. So, says Spurgeon, observe the character of the work which Christ performed. Not a work of his own devising, and not either picking or choosing about his work. I must work the works of him who sent me, he says, not some of them, but all of them, whether they should be works of drudgery or works of honour. His point being that uh, we don't get to be uh, unrighteously selective then in in our pursuit of obedience. We bear reproach for the truth or we bear testimony to the truth. Works of suffering himself or relief to those who suffered. Works of silent secret groaning or ministry in which he rejoiced in spirit. Works of prayer on the mountainside or preaching on the mountain's brow. Whatever God had called him to do, that's what Christ came to do. Whatever work the Father gave him, that was the work that he embraced. Now, I wonder whether you and I as Christians have ever fully and thoroughly realized a compulsion to do such works as these. Notice again, Christ and us. Oh, my brothers, it is so easy to work our own works, even in spiritual things, but so difficult to be brought to this. I must work the works of him that sent me. I know a great many persons, says Spurgeon, who think it's their business to preach, who'd much better make it their business to hear for a little while longer. They're overreaching themselves. They're not yet ready to do the work that God may in due course have them to do. They're rushing ahead. My servant, perhaps, might think it a very proper thing for her to arrange my papers for me in my study, but I should feel a very slender amount of gratitude to her. If, however, she will have a cup of coffee ready for me early in the morning when I have to go out to a distant country town to preach, I shall be much more likely to appreciate her services. So he says, it's it's actually doing what you're asked to do. I... I quite like the idea, actually, of Spurgeon getting just just slightly frustrated because uh, perhaps the maid who works in his home has been into his study and in, in thinking she's doing a great thing, she's tidied up his desk and he goes in in the morning and he's, oh, that's, that's not where I left that and that's not where I put that and what did I do with those notes and I'm sure I had a letter that was half finished somewhere around here and he says... Yeah, she's trying to work, but she hasn't actually done work that's very helpful. But if actually there's a cup of coffee ready for me early in the morning when I've got to go out and preach, then I will appreciate her services. So go your way and work as your master would have you. You will do better where he puts you than than you will where you put yourself. You are no servant indeed at all when you pick and choose your service for the very spirit The very essence of service consists in saying, Not my will, but yours be done. I wait for orders from the throne. Teach me what you would have me do. It's a very human uh, way of putting it, but how helpful. Do I understand that I've been given a work to do, that I must work his works, and I must work all the works which he has given me to pick up? So says Spurgeon. We must feel ourselves impelled to some form or other of spiritual effort which shall be disinterested. It doesn't mean 
uninterested. I don't care about it. He means disinterested. I've got no, um, I don't derive any personal benefit from it. It's for the good of others. And I ask you, Christian men and women, do you all feel this? What wonders were done by two or three hundred people after our Lord went up to heaven? Enough for the evangelization of a world. And yet here we are, he says, where we live. And are there, are there not so many who are not doing the work? What's the cause of the mischief? Why are so, we so slow? Why are we so dull? It's this that all Christians have not learned yet the truth that each Christian is personally to do the work of him that sent him. Now that's a, an indictment, isn't it, on so many of us and perhaps so many of the churches to which we belong, that we haven't yet learned to do the work of him who sent us personally. What does Spurgeon mean by that? We are not to depute our ministers to do it nor to think that we can discharge the service of God by proxy. So you don't just say, well, we pay, we pay the pastor, that's his job, or um, someone else will do it for us. We're not to be shoulder slopers and excusing ourselves, but each man and woman personally must give himself and herself to the service of Christ, feeling that he can read this text for himself. I, I, I must work the works of him that sent me. I must do it if nobody else does. I must. I feel a compulsion. I must in some form or other give myself to those works which are peculiarly the works of God, who sends his people into this wicked world on purpose that they may do them. So here's this this emphasis, this sense of personal relationship and with it responsibility. And he gives us an illustration. And it's an illustration that uh, we would do well to heed today even if the application may, uh, or the, the connection may, may rest in slightly different areas. So he talks about ritualism or puseyism. Again, this uh, idea that uh, it is by uh, merely external rituals. It's a, a classically Roman Catholic doctrine that, that by, the, by the, uh, the virtue that is in a priest, by the virtue that is in the sprinkling of an infant, by the virtue that is in the... Uh, that the bread and the wine at the Lord's Supper considered in them very selves, that those things are themselves going to affect salvation. And rather than being means of grace, uh, they're actually, if you will, repositories of grace, uh, quite apart from the, the, the faith and the engagement of those who are participating in them. Now Spurgeon says, that's going great guns in our society. That's sweeping through the nation. Why is it? Two things. The priests who believe in it honestly believe in it. They believe it to be the truth. They hold it with a grip not relaxed. They're not ashamed to suffer reproach for it. They come out boldly in their own colours, not hiding or playing and shuffling as some others have done, ashamed to confess, but they've come out boldly. I like to give the devil his due, says Spurgeon, and if you see courage even in a foe, you can but let it be called courage." I like, I must say, I reverence the courage of those who will stand up for Rome in the teeth of a prevalent Protestantism, as well as the courage of the Protestant who stands up against Rome in the midst of a prevalent Romanism. And then they make all their members and all their admirers earnest missionaries. You find them spreading their little tracts, dropping their books, saying a word to the young people and the young men in the shop, talking a little to that young lady in the drawing room. Now, 
as I say, we may not be up against quite the same sweep of ritualism. But you think of some of the uh, the other notions that have swept through some of the societies to which we belong. Are we as committed in principle and in practice? Do we hold as openly and as ardently to our Christianity as, say, the homosexual lobby has held to theirs or the transsexual lobby to theirs? We could say with Spurgeon, we have to admire the courage of some people who, believing what they believe, have have sacrificed much. Have I, I think of uh, one activist prominent here in the UK. He's been beaten up. He's been uh, abused in any number of ways. I think he's entirely wrong, but I, I think he's he's a courageous man. He's he's stood up for what he believes. Now I'm entitled to say I think he's wrong in what he believes but I also have to acknowledge the fact that he has shown himself courageous. And in that respect, there are lots and lots of people who are instant in season and out of season, to use the biblical language. They won't miss a trick. They won't lose an opportunity to press their cause. And all across our society, we see people who are absolutely committed to something that we are persuaded is wrong, is sinful, is in some cases wickedly perverse. But at the same time, we acknowledge they believe it and they live in accordance with what they believe. Spurgeon says, why is that true of them and not true of the church? May the old spirit and the old valour and the old enthusiasm come back to the Christian church and there's enough to save London yet. There's enough for us to send back the tide of popery yet. There's enough yet to vindicate the gospel and to show that it is yet a thing of power, mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Well, Spurgeon's pressing on, and so must we. The third thing, as there's a necessity for work and a speciality of effort, notice again how he reinforces those uh, uh, points so that there are hooks in our memory, so there's a limitation of time. I must work the work of him that sent me while it is day. That limitation of time sounds very weightily to my ears, says the preacher, coming as it does from the lips of Christ. Jesus Christ, the immortal, the ever-living, yet says, I, I must work while it is day. My brothers, if anyone could have postponed work, it was our eternal Lord. He lives still and he works still. The saints, once they have, have died, their work is done, but Christ is able to continue part of his work after it is after his death and resurrection. And so the head of the church, though always active, yet says, I must work while it is day. I must seize this present opportunity. And again, if Christ, what of us? With what force then this comes to you and to me? For we can do nothing more with our hands when once the turf has covered our head. How long will it be day with us? Some days are very short. These wintry days are soon over. My young sister, my young brother, your day may be very brief. Work while you have it. Is there a sign of consumption? Uh, Tuberculosis. Work then. Do not make that an excuse for idleness, but an argument for labour. You see, if, if I haven't got much time, let me use it while I have. Work while it's day. Or if there's no such sign, remember that still your sun may go down before it reaches its noon. Oh, young man, wait not till your powers are ripe and your opportunities are large, but say, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. You may never live to be one and twenty. 
Oh, be a soul winner before you're a man. Dear sister, seek to be a mother in Israel, a matron for Jesus Christ, while you're but a girl. Seek to win souls for Jesus while you yourselves are but lambs in Jesus' fold. She says you, you, you cannot delay. You can't wait. You don't know how long you've got. Some of you are getting grey, he says, and your day cannot be very, very much longer. Eventide has come. The shadows are drawn out. Now, you must not make the infirmities of old age an excuse for all being altogether out of harness, that is, stopping your work altogether. Spurgeon is sensitive, but he's still pressing. The master asks not from you what you cannot render, what you cannot give, but such strength as you still have, give to him while it is day, feeling that you must work the works of him that sent you. So Spurgeon's really pushing this. If I had a prophet's eye and could pick out the persons here for whom the bell will toll during the next month, how this text might suit them, while it is day. Dear mother, if you had only another thirty days, another month to live and you knew it, how would you pray for your children during that month? How you would talk to those dear boys about their souls, though you've never taken them aside and spoken to them yet. Dear Sunday school teachers, if you knew that you should only go to school one or two or three or four more Sundays, how solemnly would you now begin to talk with those children in your class? And yet, remember, this is the way in which we ought to live and work always. How do we do that? Do we, each one of us, feel that force? Let me give the text another sound, says Spurgeon, as I bid you remember that the day may soon be past, not to you, but to the objects of your care. There are so many people who will die tonight. Uh, so many people who don't have time, who don't think they do, but they don't know when the, uh, when the moment of death will come. They don't know if this is the only time they'll ever go to a place of worship. They don't know if there'll be sickness in the house and that will be the last chance that they have to trust in Christ. They don't know if they'll hear a missionary, a, a street preacher, a pastor warn them of salvation and that might be the last time. Here's that geographical awareness. You came over Blackfriars Bridge tonight. Remember, this is Blackfriars Road. It's the Surrey Chapel. This is the bridge across a lot, which a lot of people would have come through over the River Thames. And he says, you've walked over the bridge and you might drop down dead on it as you go back. You've come from your house tonight and you've left at home a dear friend to whom you wish to speak about his soul. Do it tonight for he may die in the night. Now again, I think... In our modern society, for so many of us, and I know I'm, I'm speaking primarily for the uh, for Europe and North America and uh, parts of Australasia and Asia, but there are places where death is still very close. There are places where you go, and there is such such a, a pressing sense of mortality. But for so many of us in wealthier, healthier parts of the world, we seem to assume that health and wealth are our entitlement, that, that it's not right that we should die. And Spurgeon is reminding us, even in the health and wealth of our modern, rich societies, how easily our breath can be snatched from our bodies. And he says, we need to labour with that sense upon us. We may not have long, and others do not have long. And then he says, in closing, the last words of the text, the night comes when no man can work. Here is the remembrancer of our mortality, the reminder, the night comes. No man can work. 
He says, night comes and you can't stop it. Night comes for the pastor who's labored for his flock, the evangelist who's preached with earnestness, the Sunday school teacher who's loved her charge, the missionary who's worked for souls. The night comes for those who sit in the pews, for the father, the mother, the daughter, the husband, the wife. To the Christian worker, it is sometimes a dreary thought. I have plans in action for the cause of God, upon some of which I have just newly entered, and I sometimes think I should like to live to see them in greater maturity. Perhaps I may, but I daily feel as if I should not. Constantly it haunts, haunts me. I may commence these things, but if I do not do all I can do today, I may never have a tomorrow, and therefore I say again what I have said a thousand times in my own soul, that I will do all I can now. Is that pressing sense of time which made Spurgeon the effective man that he was. He lived as if each day was his last. God can afford to wait with his work, he says. We can't afford to delay with ours. We must work now while it is day, for the night comes when no man can work. The coming of the night, though always comfortable to the Christian, when he recollects that he shall see his master, is yet sometimes a very, very heavy thought to us who are engaged in many works for Christ and who would like to live to see some of those works prospering. That's a pressing consideration for us. And then what he calls a dreary conclusion. When the night comes, no man can work. Mother, you cannot bend over your children and teach them the way of life when you've departed. If you would have them taught in the things of God, your voice at least will never teach them then of the love of Jesus. Missionary, if that district of yours be unattended, it means if the, the, the part of the city that's been put under your care as an evangelist be unattended and souls be lost, you at least can never make up for the damage you've done, for the mischief which you've caused. Your memory and your love are past. You're gone. The place that knew you once knows you no more. Among the deeds of the living you can take no share. If you've missed opportunities of serving Jesus here, you cannot come back again to retrieve them. And so he urges us, with the might of God upon us, with the open word still full of precious promises, with the mercy seat still rich in blessing, with the Holy Ghost, the irresistible deity, still dwelling in us, with the precious name of Jesus, which makes hell tremble, still to cheer us, let us go forth, feeling that we must work while it is day, for the night comes when no man can work, that we will work while the day lasts, hearing the chariot wheels of eternity behind us, we will speed on with all our might and main. And he says, as he so often does, uh, in a short paragraph, sometimes just a line at the end, Oh, poor souls, some of you do not know what it is that we want Christian people to be earnest about. Why? It is in order that you may be saved. He says, some of this, you don't even understand what we're saying because it's irrelevant to you at this point in time. But I want you, he says, to come to Christ. That's the great work in which I'm concerned. And when you are saved, you too will enlist amongst the band of Christ's workers. Saved by Christ, you will say, like Christ, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day, for the night comes when no man can work. I trust that's been a, a blessing to you. I imagine it's been a challenge to you. It makes us think of uh, hours wasted, of, uh, of time frittered away, of carelessness and thoughtlessness, and brings us back to Christ crucified, who worked the works of the God who sent him while it was day, who accomplished everything for which he had come, 
and took every opportunity to do the good that he had. It's true of him as a as a man, true of him as Messiah, and it needs to be true of us as his messengers, as his ministers, as his men and women who are labouring for the glory of his name. I hope we will take these things to heart and perhaps even today we'll be saying, let me do the work of him who sent me while it is day. God willing, next week we'll be back again. Uh, Grace, the one way of salvation, will be the featured sermon next week. It's Sermon 765 in the sequence. So we're reading 759 to 765. 765 is the featured sermon, Grace, the One Way of Salvation. And if you want to uh, keep track of what we're reading and when, you can find us at mediagratii.org slash podcasts. Sign up for a newsletter. Uh, There's some occasional tweets at Reading Spurgeon. And uh, you can introduce us also to others. If you go to Media Gratii, you'll rather find other resources like this, including a biographical film on Spurgeon's life and labours, which will give you some sense of how this man tried to live out the kinds of things he's preaching here. But I trust you've enjoyed this, and I trust that you'll return again in the future, and that you'll be blessed with us by reading Spurgeon, a man who knew Christ, who loved to work for him for the praise and glory of his name.